the What is X podcast for The Point magazine. My name is Justin E.H. Smith, and I am your host. The rules of What is X are very simple. For each episode, we are going to ask a question of the form, What is X? after the manner of the Socratic dialogues written by Plato, which were based on questions of the sort, what is art, what is beauty, what is justice, what is uh, the good, things like that. Uh, And I am going, uh, along with my guest, uh, to pursue such a question each week. Each week, a different guest and a different question. Uh, We will seek to come to an agreement as to the definition of X over the course of a circuitous uh, dialectical inquiry. And after that is uh, wrapped up, we will uh, determine whether we have reached agreement, disagreement, or Aporia. Uh, and those are the three possibilities. And then we will conclude with some post game analysis. And we will thank our speaker and bid you, the listener, farewell until next week. So this week, I am delighted to have as our guest the intrepid Becca Rothfeld, who is among the editors at The Point magazine, an associate editor, uh, an editor at large. I forget her exact title. She can tell us. She is also an accomplished and uh, uh, very uh, noteworthy critic on the uh, literary scene in the English-speaking world, and she is also a PhD student in philosophy at Harvard University, where she is working on questions pertaining to uh, the concept and the problem of beauty in philosophical aesthetics. So, welcome, Becca. Thank you so much. Uh, It's a great honor to be able to use my voice and speak to another human being, something I have not been doing as much as I would like to lately in quarantine. Um, I'm a contributing editor at the point. Contributing editor, that's it. I don't know what that means exactly or how it's different from the other kinds of editors that one could be. Um, I think you sort of covered the rest of my qualifications. I'm an art lover, so that qualifies me to say things about art, I hope. That's great. Yeah, thank you. So, contributing editor at The Point. All right, shall we get started then? Again, this is going to be, as I've described this to uh, some people already, the feel of this should be roughly half Socratic dialogue, half game show. So something between the Mino and the Price is Right is kind of the feeling we're going for. But that said, unlike the Price is Right, there are no losers here, right? Even if we end up disagreeing, or even if we find we cannot come to a definition that is just as legitimate as coming to agreement. It's not as if agreement equals winning. So what I would like to ask you is, what is art? What is art? It's a difficult question because 
obviously art is a term that is at the center of a huge semantic cloud with lots of other associated terms, notably artifice, artificial, artisan, uh, artistic, artisanal, I could go on and on. And these all go back to the same root, the Latin ars, A-R-S that is, uh, and we find a Greek equivalent in the term techne, which can be translated variously as art or as craft or indeed as skill. It's not clear that these terms or any of these terms in any of the languages we've already invoked means the same thing from one century to another. So this is something else we have to remain sensitive to, that it's a very historically embedded term with different connotations in one uh, epoch uh, than in, an, in another one. Indeed, if you use a compound phrase like art world, uh, that's obviously going to mean something very different for, say, the young British artists of the 1990s than it means even for us today, let alone, say, for curator in the Victorian period. So, Becca, do you have any thoughts on this? Can we get started? I have no idea what art is. Do you? Um, I do not have a great idea of what art is myself. Um, and of course, the first question that I want to start with is the metaphilosophical question of what we're even doing when we ask what art is, what kind of answer would satisfy us. So when I was sitting down trying to write down things that I think are true of art in general, before this, I wondered if that would be satisfying because things that are true of art or characteristic of art uh, need not answer the question of what art is because they need not be specific to art. Plenty of things that are true of art, uh, maybe even characteristic of art, are also true of or characteristic of other sorts of things. So I, I wanted to initially ask you whether we're looking for necessary and sufficient conditions mm. uh, or whether we're just trying to say things that are true and interesting about maybe not all, but many works of art? That's a good question. I suppose what I would say, and of course, uh, I don't really believe there's such a thing as metaphilosophy. I think that, you know, if you ask a metaphilosophical question, uh, ipso facto, it becomes part of philosophy, right? But I didn't mean to imply that I did not that's, think that. That's, that's just an aside. But I guess... Um, what I would say is that necessary and sufficient conditions are kind of like the gold standard of definitions. That's what we hope to get. But if we can't get that, maybe at least we can get some family resemblances. Or if we can't get any of those, maybe an inkling or a hunch, right? It's just kind of like we do the best we can, always hoping that we'll get something, ideally, that would be such that we can invoke it whenever we have the question, is this thing here a work of art? Well, does it have these two or three or four elements? That would be lovely. I worry that we're probably not going to get that with art. What about you? I mean, I think art is particularly difficult uh, in this regard. I mean, I think that most of my favorite accounts of art, or maybe they're not really accounts of art, strictly speaking, most of my favorite discussions of art take the sort of latter approach, the unsatisfying approach, where they don't attempt to offer necessary and sufficient conditions, and instead they just uh, apprise us of interesting mm. things that art can do. 
like Heidegger's discussion and origin of the work of art, I don't see as an attempt, perhaps he would disagree, mm-hmm. to offer a definition of art so much as an attempt to characterize interesting mm-hmm. facts that mm-hmm. like art can have or something. Um, but nonetheless, I would be interested in attempting to offer some necessary and sufficient conditions, whether or not we're destined for failure. Um, uh, no, but uh, seriously, uh, maybe this is important at the outset. Do you think it is a futile or even perhaps a silly undertaking? Do you roll your eyes at the idea of pursuing this question together? <laughs> um, no, I don't. I will say that in the course of reading about definitions of art, I've come to the conclusion that maybe what is more important is not the question of what art is, but the question of what makes art good, mm. and maybe even the question of aesthetic value more broadly. So even if we can't come to any you know, consensus about what art is, it might be the case that there's something that unifies everything beautiful. And I feel more optimistic about the prospect of coming to a conclusion about a definition about that. That's promising, but here's a problem with it, perhaps, that we w- could easily end up having to accept, and you might want to accept, recognizing, for example, natural objects, For example, to use, I think this is Richard Wolheim's example, say certain forms of driftwood or the contemplation stones that scholars put in their studies in classical China, things that are simply lifted out of nature and not transformed by human art in the literal sense, but that nonetheless have the power to provoke an experience of beauty in us or an experience uh, that we also associate with, with, say, a given painting or symphony or something else like that. So if you're prepared, potentially, to admit aesthetic experience before the natural world as well, then we could pursue your line of no, so I, I wouldn't necessarily want to say that uh, the Grand Canyon is a work of art or something like that. But rather, uh, if left to my own devices, I would be more inclined to ask the question, what makes something aesthetically valuable than mm-hmm. the question, what makes something a work of art? Um, because I think one, I guess, subsidiary question would be, what are the stakes of answering that question? Mm-hmm. What does it matter if something is a work of art? Does it follow that we treat it differently? Um, and I mean, I think actually, as I've been reflecting on it for this, I've sort of dismissed the question and decided to ask Dr. Beatty instead. But I think that maybe, I mean, we do treat works of art differently. We write criticism of works of art. We don't write criticism of the Grand Canyon. Um, So I think that maybe I had dismissed the question too cursorily in my first years of graduate school. Um, But I think that's something to keep in mind, um, because I think that aesthetic beauty is also important as it attaches to things besides works of art, human bodies, works of nature, so on and so forth. Um, And so I think often in the history of philosophy, when people have asked after uh, the definition of a work of art, they should have been asking after aesthetic value given what they care about. Like yeah. it's true of Hegel, in my opinion, or whatever. Um, nonetheless, we can ask after the necessary and sufficient conditions of works of art and do our best. Mm. Um, I have one condition that I think is plausibly necessary, albeit not sufficient, uh, taken from Hegel's aesthetics, which I've just been reading sort of in preparation for this and also just to to get into it. So I guess it seems to me that it is a necessary constraint on art that it be made for and by humans mm-hmm. or things with human-like uh, minds. Interesting. I was going to say a moment ago when you suggested uh, this very peculiar idea, let's say some very foreign culture that we might land upon where we learn that they actually do write 
nature criticism. That would be really strange and interesting, right? But I was thinking about this in connection with Kant, uh, because Kant, in this very peculiar work of his, the Critique of the Power of Judgment, where he combines what we might today call inquiry into the living world on the one hand with philosophical aesthetics on the other hand discusses such things as free natural beauties like the feathers of certain tropical birds and seashells and so on but also elsewhere uh Kant discusses at some point his disgust at the thought of whales in the act of copulation and you know is revolted by this on aesthetic grounds. And so I, I, I think that someone, if we're looking for someone who comes close to trying to combine the two in a way that Hegel seeks positively to forestall, it would be Kant. Uh, and that might be an actually, actually a historically very interesting split where up until Hegel, we had the possibility of doing nature criticism and art criticism together. You want to agree with Hegel, though. You think it's right to restrict it to that narrower conception where it's something humans or human-like beings are coming up with art. Why do you want to restrict it that way? I guess in response to all of that, I have like one thing to say, which is that I think historically it is not true that up until Hegel, uh, we we don't admit of the possibility of excluding nature because I think like people like Plato who want to say that art's primary function is mimetic, which I think is definitely wrong. But I think that that rules out uh, thinking of like works of nature or uh, works of nature. I've already completed the two but <laughs> beautiful things in nature things as works nature. of art. Um, why do I want to rule out the possibility that works of works of nature? My God, I keep saying it, but beautiful <laughs> things in nature count as works of art. Well, the um, 18th century term would have been works of the creator. And so in the 18th century, you do have a strong convergence of the two through natural theology. But that's just an aside. Right, which, which, which makes sense because it allows you to uh, apply the same kind of interpretive practices towards mm-hmm. uh, beautiful things in nature that you would towards works of art. So, I, I mean, I guess I incline towards like an institutional understanding of what art is, that art probably has something to do with the kind of practices that we're able to take up in relation to it. This is like um, and George, so, George Dickey. Uh, uh, yeah, and I think Dante. Dante as well. Is I, a good I like, I like Dante's account. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I think one reason why I'm inclined to say that I don't want to count nature among art, although, of course, I think that it can have aesthetic value, which even Hegel doesn't think that it can even have like that much aesthetic value. And I disagree with him about that. Um, but I think it's because we have different processes in relation to nature. And so, and th- I mean, I haven't actually spent a lot of time thinking about why it is that it would seem so futile to me to write a piece of criticism about a work of a piece of nature, perhaps mm. God's creation. Um, but I think maybe one reason might be that a lot of criticism aspires not just to uh, describe whether something has aesthetic value or not, uh, but rather to interpret uh, something and right. it only makes sense to interpret something that has uh, an agent behind it and that is plausibly understood as like a sort of symbol for something right um so it's not it's not even sufficient if god is the creator of things like the grand canyon you have to intend them to be 
uh, symbol for something or to admit of interpretation in order for us to take the same relationship. That sounds plausible to me. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the institutional theory, just so that we're all clear on this? Because Don Danto's preferred example is uh, uh, Andy Warhol's Brillo box and other such, as he would put it, transfigured commonplace objects, uh, so that. For Danto, if I understand him correctly, it's perfectly okay to say that there is there is one Brillo box that is atomically, physically identical to the millions of other Brillo boxes out there. But unlike all those other Brillo boxes out there, which are mere commercial packaging, this one Brillo box that Andy Warhol has transfigured and had caused to be placed in a museum is a work of art. Um, I mean, no, I think that that, well, I'm sure that one could say different things about like various proponents of the institutional theory. And I, it's been a while since I delved into the details of the different views and how different people disagree about the details. But I think the basic idea is that the advent of modern art raises challenges that historical accounts of what art or aesthetic value are uh, is not sufficient mm-hmm. to respond to because with the advent of modern art and people like Duchamp, people are um, reappropriating everyday objects and sometimes I guess even pieces of nature uh, in recent years um, and describing them as or treating them as works of art. So if we accept that these things are works of art then traditional accounts on which art is something mimetic or um, art is something that has a particular kind of aesthetic value like it's beautiful um, are no longer sufficient. Um, and so the best way for us to understand what makes something like a Brillo box or a urinal a work of art uh, is to appeal to its institutional history uh, and maybe also to appeal to the sort of practices that categorizing it as a work of art enables the sort of practices that we like take up in relation to it. Um, so I historically have found those sorts of accounts to be the most compelling, although perhaps today uh, I will change <laughs> my mind. <laughs> you, you've mentioned kind of the historical conditioning of the notion of art and the way that classical accounts are inadequate for, say, 20th century ready-mades and other avant-garde instances of envelope pushing. But when you say classical, I suppose you mean the very distinct history of philosophical aesthetics that starts to emerge with figures like Alexander Baumgarten and moves up through the 19th century in Germany. But then that gives us a reason to stop and think, well, wait a minute, that was a pretty brief period of time. And surely what someone was saying about art circa 1800 was not only not suitable for explaining Andy Warhol or Marcel Duchamp, but it also wasn't suitable for explaining, say, uh, medieval orthodox icons or any other, let's say, tradition of religious art where typically the artist works anonymously and it's all uh, subordinated to the greater glory of God and so on. So in that respect, one does start to worry that this is a particularly historically contingent concept, and that we're working with the final remains of a tradition that was actually very short. Would you agree with that? Not 
sure. I mean, it does seem plausible to me that what people are apt to characterize as art and the Mm -hmm. institutions surrounding art change historically. Um, It does seem that there is some continuity. I suppose it seems like the institutional account perhaps has the resources to accommodate this kind of thought and that it is open to institutionalists to Mm -hmm. say that the relevant sorts of institutions like evolve over time. So maybe the institutions surrounding art production in the Middle Ages are different. And so what makes something a work Mm -hmm. of art under other than that circumstance is different. Um, I myself, Uh I mean, I guess I'm a bit more of a perennialist to use the language that you use (laughs) in your book, which listeners, I've had a chance to read and it's great. Um, So I might be more inclined to say, I guess, that there are uh-huh. stable features of institutions uh-huh. that define art throughout history, some. Um, I think even in the context of medieval art, one assumes that there is a human agency behind it, even if we don't have a, a notion of the auteur and the way that mm-hmm. we do mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, uh, I sympathize with your perennialism. Uh, one also sometimes, though, wants to say with Friedrich Engels, right, that a certain uh, amount of quantitative change leads to qualitative change. And that, you know, if if there's a certain number of transformations in the practices of artistic production and a certain degree of transformation of the economy and the institutions that host artistic production, then at some point you just have to say, this ain't the same thing anymore. Can I give you an example of of something I I read recently? It's wild. So there are services for like ultra wealthy oligarch types uh, uh, where you can get an art agent who will recommend purchases. And then once you authorize these purchases, the same agent will see to their storage for you. That is out of sight. Nobody will look at them. Nobody will damage them with their breath or light or anything like that. And this is effectively for ultra wealthy people who see art, not only as in part an investment, but as entirely an investment, as nothing more than an investment. So uh, imagine, I mean, here's, here's where I think the institutional theory might reach its kind of limit uh, of explanatory power. Take uh, some kind of hot new artist whose work has been purchased by such a service and is now being stored in deep storage underground somewhere and is just kind of hiding there secretly as a work of art, right? It seems a stretch to say that that thing there, even if it, say, represents a human being on a canvas or a sunrise or something like that, that that thing there is ontologically of the same kind as, say, a Paleolithic cave painting, (laughs) right? Would you agree? Hmm. I mean, I guess I'm actually not completely sure about that. I mean, I I think that if one takes the really bare institutionalist, unornamented institutionalist account, then one would have to conclude that they are both works of art. I think that what to me seems to make the institutionalist account more plausible, I guess, than Mm. it is in the bare iteration is if one supplements it with the idea that there's Mm. something in common uh, between, between all human institutions, not all human institutions, but like human institutions as they pertain to like a particular practice. I mean, that practice does seem, in some ways that practice seems alien. In other ways, it seems pretty reminiscent of 
patronage systems in earlier epics where people were not so concerned with the art that was produced by the people of whom they were patrons, but were just concerned to make themselves mm. seem like they were interested in the arts or something like that. Although, I'm, I mean, I'm not super up on the history of it. I will say that I think that um, I have rarely encountered an artwork, in particular a work of literature from a different era that did not seem uh, comprehensible in some respects to me, at least with some background information, mm -hmm. which makes me feel like mm -hmm. at least uh, certain facts about literary institutions are common throughout time. And this even mm -hmm. seems true to me uh, when I look at art from the Middle Ages, literary art from the Middle Ages. Um, oh, yeah. Anonymous or maybe even irrelevant author or something like Gawain and the Green Knight, I think, can be read. Uh, in a way that is very uh, resonant even to a person today. Although, of course, I can never know for sure whether that's a function of my own imposition of my presuppositions onto it. That's so interesting. I, I, I've thought a lot about this, and maybe one thing someone might say in opposition, uh, I am often struck, I, I read a lot of uh, uh, epic poetry and oral epics of traditional cultures. And I'm often struck by what I take to be the aesthetic power of a uh, kind of archaic uh, perspective on human beings, in particular, a lack of any preoccupation with their inwardness. There's like zero Proustian quality in traditional oral epics. And I respond to that aesthetically. I dig it. But what I try to remind myself, though, is that this is not necessarily being done for aesthetic effect. It might be being done because it's just the way they see people. But you see more continuity in the description of what we as human beings are from, say, medieval tales to contemporary well, I mean, I think novels. It depends because I think that any reasonable person will come down in the middle saying there are some differences in the medieval perspective on personhood and there are some similarities. But I, I have to say that I have and not, some um, and people yeah. always say this about Greek uh, Greek art and Greek conceptions of the person. They say that there's no room for inwardness and it's Augustine who invents uh, inner life or something like that. But I have to say that I find, um, I'm not mm -hmm. huge on Greek literature or anything, but I think that I think that a lot of the characters, especially mm -hmm. in Plato's dialogues, for example, are super recognizable. Uh, and it, it doesn't seem to me that any uh, mm -hmm. sort of standard account of inwardness is expunged. So for, for instance, I love Alcibiades's drunken speech in the symposium about how he loves Socrates. It's super recognizable. I think everybody has had those sorts of feelings. Yeah. Most people have had occasion for drunken confession. Um, and he seems to acknowledge, I mean, really in the most literal sense, that Socrates has an inner, uh, an inner, an inner life that is, uh, that he can look upon and love. I mean, you open Socrates and you see these beautiful statues inside and this sort of thing. So, yeah. I mean, although I think that there are part of what is interesting about reading literature from other eras uh, and other cultures is that there's all kinds of presuppositions that are alien to you. Um, like in high-end courtly poetry from Japan, there's all these uh, uh, formal rules about the kind of uh, landscape imagery that you can invoke in a particular kind of poem, uh, and the intensity mm -hmm. of the formal constraints is like really interesting and is uh, super unfamiliar to somebody who's writing and reading after modernism. Nonetheless, I've yet to find a work of literature that does not seem to me uh, to contain something recognizable. And I think that even in medieval works of literature, for example, uh, like in Gawain and the Green Knight, Gawain seems to have mm. like a vivid inner life. He's resisting the advances mm. of his host during the hunt passages. I don't know if you've read Gawain and the Green mm -hmm. Knight. 
Um, I have not. So, no, oh, it's great. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's it's really awesome. Put it on my yeah. list. Yeah, <laughs> it's a giant green um, night. Uh, that's so cool. Um, I, I could indeed be wrong about this, but I mean, of course, you know, you you read even the most archaic, I'm doing scare quotes with my fingers for people who can't see this, you read even the most archaic accounts of human action, and you still recognize it as action. And that already implies that there is some kind of motivation behind this and some kind of inner process going on that leads to the action. So indeed, I, I think you're, 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 you're very right about this. We do exaggerate the uh, recentness of the discovery of the inner life. Let me throw you a, a curveball, I think, because you have already suggested it, uh, so it's not that much of a curveball. That is, whether we can maybe get closer to a definition that we agree upon by looking at the parallel question on which I believe you do have strong opinions, not what is art, but what is beauty. So even if that forces us to take driftwood and gemstones and things like that into consideration as well, what is beauty? Well, I actually, I, I don't mean to throw such a curveball back, I suppose. But I think that this is a super independent, super independently interesting question. Like, I mean, one that my dissertation is about and that I care about, but I actually don't think this is a promising strategy for answering the question of what art is at all, uh, precisely mm. because I think the two come apart so sharply. It's just that I sometimes suspect that this is the more important question um, or the question that maybe we have better prospects of answering or something. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think that plenty of artworks are certainly not beautiful. Um, I mean, one question mm -hmm. that we perhaps could take up is the question of whhether it's possible for something to be bad art, like whether art is on a record or not, which I think is something that changes over the course of the mm. history of philosophy. Like people like Hegel use the term art like honorifically. Um, and some other people mm -hmm. are perfectly willing to admit that franchise uh, superhero movies are art, whereas other people would want to say mm -hmm. they aren't even art at all. That's a separate sort of question. Um, but I, I was just going to say, I'm I'm very sympathetic if we're looking for, if we need a definition, I'm very sympathetic to the art as a, an honorific view. I think that settles the matter cleanly. Uh, we call art what uh, we think deserves the honor and we withhold the honorific from that which is bad. I'm not saying I'm going to go for it, but I'm saying it has its attractions. So go on. That raises other sorts of questions, though, because there are more kinds of aesthetic value, at least in my opinion, than beauty. Um, so in addition to there being things that maybe we want to say that they're so bad that they're not even artworks, but it, there is some there's something uh, compelling about describing something as a bad artwork. That's mm -hmm. like one objection to that view. Uh, but another would be that it just raises a, a different host of questions, mm -hmm. um, because I think that there are plenty of artworks that we might want to say are, I don't know, um, Maybe they're interesting, maybe they're disturbing, uh, but without being beautiful or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and so then the question would be, what what are the range of aesthetic values that correspond to, to artwork or that define things as being artwork? Mm -hmm. um, and then the, there are all sorts of other related questions about like what makes something aesthetic anyway? Like what makes something an aesthetic property? Is this an ethical property or just like a descriptive property? Um, and then you get into some other stuff. So while it might be true that uh, honorific account of what art is is ultimately salvageable i don't think it necessarily simplifies things mm -hmm. because it raises these other sorts of questions you're right yeah yeah i can see that yeah let me try to approach this from another perspective uh you have written a lot uh in your capacity as a critic about 
literature. And this is, uh, in some sense, as I understand your work, your home base in terms of thinking about what art is. So this raises the question of genre, of genres of artistic production and of what unites them. In particular, with respect to literature, we often hear the phrase, the weird compound phrase, arts and literature, which, which leaves literature as a kind of outlier. And the first question is, why? And the second question is, does this perhaps reveal something about the piece together, bricolet sort of character of what we think of as art? When we look at the way the different genres are just kind of thrown together. So I think that there is a historical explanation for why this is so. And by the way, this is something that really irritates me in reading like a ton of aesthetics. So much of it is just about, uh, not even about, all the arts except for literature but just yeah. about the visual arts like a lot of aesthetics seems to just assume without any justification that paintings and sculptures are the only or at least primary objects of interest to somebody interested in aesthetics um and they include things like dance and there is a rich aesthetic tradition of people discussing music um but often when people do things like offer definitions of art they sort of conveniently forget to care yeah. about things like music and dance um in addition to forgetting to care about literature. But I, th I mean, I think that the contingent historical explanation for this uh, is that people who are interested in aesthetics or what they call aesthetics, at least initially, are interested in uh, sensory experience and they're interested in sensible properties. Yeah. And so a lot of like the early romantic uh, and idealist attempts to understand uh, what is distinctive about the aesthetic or what is distinctive about art appeal to something like sensible properties. Um, literature may or may not mm. have sensible properties. Of course, literature can be read aloud. Some literature is intended to be read aloud. Mm -hmm. and that sort of literature has uh, auditory properties, but plenty of literature seems to not have that many sensible properties um, unless we define sensible properties in a weird and counterintuitive way. Uh, so that's why I think that literature is mm -hmm. often left out. Um, I'm not sure that it's... Uh, historical exclusion is evidence that there is not something unifying about different sorts of art to be found so much as it just reflects mm. a sort of romantic bias. Although interestingly, the romantics also care a lot about poetry, uh, poesy, and that mm -hmm. is a really important category for them. And they think that that does all kinds of yeah. important work or whatever. Um, I myself am inclined to think that at least something uh, can be found in common across oh, different sorts of art, although I'm not sure that I could uh, No, that. I, I, I want to know what it is. Uh, you're inclined to think it. You suspect it, but you can't pinpoint it. To me, it seems to have something to do with the appropriateness of doing criticism vis-a-vis -vis or upon or whatever the appropriate yeah. of these objects. Yeah, I mean, um, one worries a little bit, no offense, but that you are something like an ornithologist trying to uh, make make the case for your relevance to birds, uh, to um, invoke that old example about how philosophers of science are no more uh, necessary for science than ornithologists are for birds. You are a critic and you are seeking to define art as that which opens itself up for critical engagement, right? And one might want to say to you as a critic, oh, how convenient, right? You're, you see what I mean? You're defining art into your, your that, 
it, you're, you're giving art the definition that makes what you do particularly relevant. Um, and yet I'm inclined to agree with you. Yet I, I, I find it a pretty attractive proposal when we're looking for what all these things have in common. Um, in response to the ornithologist's point, I was just reading a book where someone suggests to uh, the spouse that the person should take up bird watching and the response is, the bird <laughs> should watch me, um, which I think is amazing. That's in Norman oh, Rush's Mortal, which is a great book. Um, but in any case, I mean, so I do think that I'm defining, well, I guess, who knows what the direction is? Maybe I became a critic because some part of me sensed that this is the appropriate attitude yeah. to take towards works of art. Uh, or maybe I want I want to uh, ensure relevance for myself by defining art in reference to criticism. I will say though that I think that what I mean by criticism includes more than formal criticism. Um, and so, I mean, I think that it is at least important in discussing why art is important to us and whether or not that should figure into our definition is sort of a separate question. But is at least uh, one reason why art is important to us is that we can engage in a series of critical, uh, keep using the word practices, and maybe that's just the best word, critical practices surrounding it, whether mm -hmm. they be formal or informal. So it's not just that there can be an architectural digest, and that's what makes architecture architecture, but rather that uh, architecture is the kind of thing that you can talk about with your friends, uh, that you might be inclined to talk about with your friends. It is something of which it is sensible to ask why uh, a certain mm -hmm. choice was made. Um, of course, that isn't unique to art, because that's true of any any activity performed with human agency, um, but it's something of which it is fruitful to ask why particular sorts of choices were made. Um, and I think I think that accounts of, I guess, aesthetic appreciation that I like most are ones that have it that aesthetic appreciation is not immediate, but it's rather the product of sort of discussion and consumption of artifacts yeah. around the artifacts under discussion, because that seems to me to be true. And that seems to be to me to be a very important part of uh, artistic consumption, to use a mm -hmm, appetitive mm -hmm. word. So I... I guess my justification for thinking that criticism has something to do with it has to do with the centrality of uh, interpretive discussion and aesthetic practices, informal interpretive discussion, mm -hmm. often just people debating, you know, whether the Beatles are better than the Stones or something that seems to be central to the way that we relate to our work, even when we're not mm -hmm, professional mm -hmm. critics. Becca, uh, I think our time is just about up in terms of our dialogical inquiry. I think I hear some church bells chiming. That means we are in agreement. I wanted uh, the goat bleed. <laughs> I'm so um, disappointed. Well, look, technically you're a winner. I mean, I, I didn't want to make you nervous, but the truth is it's better to agree than to disagree. And I wouldn't say exactly, I mean, this was a tough call. I'm going with the church bells because basically we didn't come to uh, any kind of necessary and sufficient conditions. That is, we didn't come to anything like the gold standard of uh, definition as we laid it out earlier in the show. Uh, but we came to something that felt like agreement, which is that art is whatever is uh open to interpretive criticism. And I'd never even thought of that before. And so maybe like it feels like agreement. And then, this, you know, I'm going to come away from this conversation and I'm going to be wait, like, wait a minute, Becca and I don't 
think the same thing at all about what art is, but still, at least for the moment, like hearing this, this new understanding that appeals to me so much feels like agreement. So that's what we're going to go with. And you're a winner. Right. <laughs> um, right. Um, it's at least a necessary condition. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, ha- I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I just kind of called it right there because it's important to uh, stick uh, to time. But we have about uh, one more minute to talk. So I thought I would throw another question at you. What about superhero movies? Are they an appropriate object of serious criticism? That is a good question. I mean, I certainly think, well, I say this from a position of total ignorance because I actually haven't seen very many of them, maybe any of them. I mean, I saw like the Batman movie in like high school. I I think I I saw the one Um, with Michael Keaton in it, which might have been like 1989. Uh, That's that's (laughs) that's my most recent superhero movie. I guess I watched um, part of the Jessica Jones TV show, which was like on Netflix. Um, It was not very good, in my opinion. I mean, the reason, so if they are anything like I assume uh, they would be like on the basis of seeing previews for them and finding myself totally disinterested in watching them, um, I would say that they are certainly bad art, um, but it is possible to write a pan of something. I mean, that is, a, according to some, uh, the most thrilling uh, critical genre is the pan. Um so I think that, yes, they are an appropriate object of uh, excoriating criticism. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. Thank you so much, Becca. Again, uh, this has been the What is X podcast, and I am Justin E.H. Smith. My guest has been Becca Rothfeld, and we have come to a sort of agreement on the question, what is art? I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, we'll see you later. Bye.